Please take your scriptures and open with me to Matthew chapter 9. We'll be looking at the last part of that chapter together. We've been working our way through really the whole section starting in chapter 5 of Matthew with the Sermon on the Mount. Um, actually, the end of chapter 4, where Jesus goes about healing and and uh, and teaching. And then at the end of 9, as I've said before, Jesus, it, Matthew kind of puts a bookend on that and says that he continued to go around teaching and healing. And so that's really a section that we're finishing up in this week and the coming weeks. Let's read God's word starting in verse 18 of chapter 9. We remember that Jesus is at uh, Matthew's house eating with the tax collectors and sinners, and he's been approached by the Pharisees, he's been approached by John's disciples. And we pick up in this narrative in verse 18. And God's word says, while he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, my daughter has just died. But come and lay your hands on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who was suffering from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if only I touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl rose. And the report of this went through all that district. And as he passed on on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all of that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never has anything like this been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He has cast out demons by the prince of demons. And as Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction, when he saw the crowds... He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, 
but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Lord God, your word is weighty, and your word is a scalpel, and your word is nourishing. And Lord, we ask that you feed us today by it, that you, that you circumcise our hearts by it, that you change our lives by it today. Help us, Lord, to learn the lessons that you have for us, that you've preserved for us in these words for this day. In Jesus' name, amen. So the structure of chapters 8 and 9 certainly point to Jesus' authority. We've said that before in the weeks preceding this, that that the structure of of chapters 8 and 9 point to his authority over disease, over nature, over spiritual powers, over the power of sin. We notice that Jesus does a short teaching in between each of those. I hope you've noticed that along the way. Each of these trio of miracles, you have a teaching of Jesus. You have three and then a teaching, three and then a teaching, three and then a teaching. After healing the leper and the centurion servant and Peter's mother-in-law, he teaches on the cost of discipleship. Remember that? Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. But the Son of God has no place to lay his head, right? After calming the storm and healing the two demoniacs and the paralytic, this next trio of miracles, he teaches on the call of sinners, doesn't he? He calls Matthew, the tax collector, and he chides the Pharisees, telling them that the the sick do not need a doctor. I mean, the, the well do not need a doctor, the sick do. You know, sinners need Jesus. Now we have this third trio of miracles that we just read before us, the healing of, of two women, a little girl and that woman that was issuing blood, the healing of the blind man and the healing of this demon-oppressed uh, man who could not speak. And then Jesus teaches on the need for laborers, doesn't he? He the teaches on the need for people to be harvesters. Thus, when you look at the, these this structure that Matthew has placed before us, the Holy Spirit has inspired Matthew to show different aspects of following Christ. Different aspects of following Christ. First, the cost of following Christ. Through the first teaching. Then through the second teaching, the call of, of following Christ. And here, I'm calling it, because preachers love alliterations, we're calling it the components of following Christ. In other words, how does one become a harvester? He's telling us we, the harvest is ready. Where are the laborers? And through these three miracles, we're going to see how one becomes a harvester, how one becomes a laborer, how one becomes a Christian, if you will. I'm calling this the road to salvation. And that's what we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks in this section is this study of these this trio of miracles in light of Jesus' teaching. Now, what I'm not saying is that every time a person is healed by Jesus, they become a Christian. That's not what I'm saying at all. But each healing here gives us a little insight into what it takes to become a Christian. In other other words, the Reformers referred to an ordo salutis, what, what... what are the components of salvation? We're going to do, do kind of a mini ordo salutis here. 
What components of salvation do we see in these miracles? And the first one we see is desperation. The first component of salvation is desperation. The Oxford Dictionary defines desperation as feeling or showing a helplessness sense that a situation is so bad that it's impossible to deal with. The situation is so bad, it's just impossible to deal with. We can see this in actually all who come to Jesus. We see this all the time in in the scriptures. That People are coming to Jesus because they're feeling like they're at the end of their road. They have nowhere to turn. There's a certain amount of desperation for everyone who comes to Jesus. But here in verses 18 through 26 is what we're going to be looking at today. We have two particularly, particularly desperate people that approach Jesus. Two particularly desperate people. A ruler of a synagogue and a bleeding woman. You can see the desperation in the ruler who comes to Jesus for help. You see him here. He comes while he was saying these things. Behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Through other gospel accounts, we see we know that this man's name is Jairus. He was a synagogue ruler. And he had this daughter that, that died. We don't know how she died, but we do know that she was 12 years old. We find that out in Luke's account. This 12-year-old daughter died. And this is the ultimate desperate, desperate situation, isn't it? When someone dies. I mean, we're kind of going through that. It's kind of providential that I'm preaching on this as, as Carrie's father has just died last night and there's a certain amount of desperation that we're feeling, a certain amount of help us Lord that we're feeling. And that's I can kind of empathize and sympathize with this, this ruler. Jairus. He wants his little daughter back. He wants his little girl back. He has nowhere to turn. All hope is gone. His daughter's lying there breathless. And he's desperate. And desperation makes you do desperate things, doesn't it? It makes you do things that you normally wouldn't do. I remember when uh, we were in our church back in Massachusetts, the associate pastor there, Greg Hills, his wife uh, started battling cancer, and it went on for a couple years, and and. It was amazing how that body kind of drew together to support him. And towards the very end, when everything they had done didn't work, I mean, she she was in her 30s. They had four young kids. When everything else didn't work, they decided to fly to Germany. I remember this. Fly to Germany and do some experimental cancer treatment. This fringe cancer treatment as the last desperate act to save this woman's life, to save his wife's life. They flew over there, and unfortunately she never flew back. But he was willing to do anything to save his wife's life. These desperate acts. Desperation makes you do things you normally wouldn't do. And Jairus had heard of this Jesus in the area who had been healing the sick. He heard maybe of the leper he had heard, or the, the, the other people that he had, he had healed. And he says, why not? I'm going to Jesus. 
So he goes in desperation in verse 18. We see there that he kneels before Jesus. Can you imagine that? The, the ruler of the synagogue kneeling before Jesus, this itinerant preacher out of nowhere. His desperation is even more fully seen if you, if you look at the accounts in, in Mark chapter 5 and in Luke chapter 8. Those are these, the, the parallel accounts. We see there that Jairus implored earnestly, it says. The NIV translates that pleaded with Jesus. You can almost see him holding on to his ankles, not letting him go. Please help my daughter. No such words for the, from the woman, though. But her actions showed how desperate she was. Look, look at verse 20 with me. It says there, Behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. This woman was desperate for another reason. She had been bleeding for 12 years. Mark's gospel tells us that she had gone to doctor after doctor after doctor after doctor, and none could help her. And as a matter of fact, in Luke's account, it says she didn't even get better. She got worse as she went to the doctors. I mean, perhaps some of you can understand this. I know... Throughout the years, some of you have, have suffered an illness that could not be diagnosed. What's going on with my body? What's going on with my husband or my wife's body or my child's body? They can't diagnose it. If you've ever had that kind of undiagnosable illness, you realize how, how frustrating and desperate you become. You continue to feel terrible, yet... Nothing can be said about it. Nothing can be done about it. I was kind of in that position about a year ago today. I kept feeling worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And they were saying, we don't know. Maybe this, maybe that. But her situation was even worse than, than yours or possibly mine was. Because as James Boyce points out, there were the, the, the Jewish culture was putting other pressures on her that, that we don't share. Most commentators see her bleeding as referring to her menstrual cycle. Twelve years. And so that made her ritually unclean. Thus the law demanded that she totally separate herself from temple worship. Brothers and sisters, temple worship was was really like what it is today with, with church. Their life revolved around temple worship. That was the center of which everything else orbited, as our life should orbit around the local church. And she could not enter into any of that. She was thus she was isolated. She was unclean and isolated. Leviticus 15 stipulates that, that a woman during her menstrual cycle cannot come in contact with anybody. Could you imagine for 12 years not being able to be touched? In a way, COVID has, has brought this 
a little bit of a reality in our life. I know for someone like me who, who is a hugger and who is, you know, it, a, a, a hand on your shoulder type person, a handshaker, not to be able to do that, and maybe you've felt this too, has been kind of isolating. There's something missing in the relationship that should be there. Imagine a woman who could not be touched by a family, a friend, no hand on the shoulder, no hug of empathy. She would never be pursued if she was unmarried by a man. If she was married, we don't know. No intimate relations for 12 years. Could you imagine the isolation she felt? Lastly, she was incurable. Luke's account says no one could cure her. So when we look at these two people from a spiritual perspective, if we look at them, we kind of take a step or two back and look at them from a spiritual perspective, we have a really good picture of everyone apart from the healing grace of Jesus Christ. That's the picture that Matthew is painting for us here. We're desperate. We're 100% in a desperate situation apart from Christ. That's what this, this, these encounters with Christ is showing us. See, our sin has made us unclean. Jeremiah 2.22 says, Although you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your iniquity is ever before me. Don't we try and do that? We try, before we come to Christ, to clean ourselves up. No matter how much we do, no matter how much we try and live morally upstanding lives, no matter how much philanthropy we do, no matter how many good deeds we do, no matter how much time we give to worthy causes, no matter how much money we give, we cannot clean ourselves up. We all know deep down that without Christ's healing, without something happening, we're unclean before God. We're also isolated from God before Christ. Sin isolates us from God. Like our first parents in the garden, sin causes us to hide from God. See, it's not that God cannot be in the presence of sin. I think there's, there's a misunderstanding here. It's not that God cannot be in the presence of sin. It's that sin doesn't want to be in the presence of God. That's what the garden teaches us. Jeremy Myers writes this, Sometimes we get the crooked view of God where he cannot look upon sin or be near sin because sin would somehow taint his holiness. Such a view gives sin way too much power and gives God way too little. He goes on to write, God is not like a pristine white couch upon no one can sit for fear of getting it soiled. No, sin cannot be in the presence of God because whenever God draws near to sin, listen to this, the raging inferno of his love and, the, and his holiness washes all sin away. goes on to say, God can no more be tainted by sin than the ocean could be dyed red with a single drop of food coloring. I think that's right. 
We see this in Jesus' ministry, don't we? Jesus is not afraid to touch the leper. He's not afraid to touch dead bodies that the law tells makes him, him tainted. No. Whatever he touches becomes clean. But without his touch, we remain isolated, self-isolated. And lastly, we're incurable. Just like that woman went from doctor to doctor. For many people, they go from self-help guru to moral fad, to from religion to religion to religion, looking for the cure, pursuing some rightness in their life. And there's no better picture of the end to which this sin leads than Jairus' daughter. That's the picture of the end to which the path of sin leads, which is death. The book of James describes that path as each person is tempted when he is allured and enticed by his own desire. Then when desire has fully conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. There's the path of sin. And we, like Jairus, all seek a cure for this death. We all want to avoid death like the plague, if you will. We all want to cheat death. I was trying to find out how, how many billions have been spent on this vaccine, this COVID-19 vaccine. I couldn't find a number, so I'm just going to say billions and billions and billions of dollars have been spent so that we can have a vaccine so that we don't die. I'm not saying that's not a good thing or we shouldn't do that, but I'm just bringing to our consciousness how, how fearful we are of death. And we'll do anything, anything to avoid it, to get out of it, to cheat it. Yet our sin keeps us away from Jesus, the one person who can cure us. Like magnets that are polarized, sin keeps us away from the one person that can heal us. That's what sin does. Just like our first parents, we don't want to approach Jesus. I've been in hospitals, and I've told you this before, I've been in hospitals with people that are actually dying. They know they're dying. I know they're dying. Their family knows they're dying. The doctors knows they're dying. And I'm sharing the gospel with them. The one thing that can help them cheat death, if you will. And there's still this running away from. It's always boggled my mind. Always boggled my mind. They're still afraid to move towards Jesus. I think there's a scene in, in the Narnia Chronicles, <coughs> excuse me, C.S. Lewis's <coughs> books, where this weird spiritual phenomena is actually explored by him. A new visitor to Narnia named Jill is wandering about lost and very thirsty, if you remember. She finds a stream, but is guarded by the lion Aslan, which is Lewis's Christ figure, as you know. She watches the lion for a very long time as her thirst grows, but is afraid to move towards the stream 
They can slake her thirst because of the lion. At length, Aslan speaks and says, You're thirsty. Come and drink. Fearful, Jill hesitates. So the lion asks again, You're thirsty, aren't you? She says, I'm dying of thirst. Then drink. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I come, she says? I make no promises. Do you eat girls? I've swallowed kings and emperors, cities and realms, he says. I dare not come drink, she says. Then you will die of thirst. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. To which the lion responds, there is no other stream. It's a great picture. You have to come to that point of total desperation to move towards Jesus. That's where Jairus and this woman came to understand. There's no other stream. I can't go anywhere else. That's what Peter came to understand when when Jesus said, are you two going to leave? And he said what? Where shall we go? There is no one else. There's no other stream. So Jairus came and, and threw himself before Jesus and said, please come and touch my daughter. The woman snuck up and said, if only I can touch the one person that can heal. They all went to the one person who could save them. That's what the Bible teaches us. There's only one person that can save. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says, There's one name under heaven by which men must be saved. And until you get to that place, until you get to that one place, that place of desperation, until your desperation reaches the level of these two, You'll never seek anyone outside yourself for salvation. You'll always be trying to clean yourself up. Stop your blood flow. But scripture says you can't do that. No matter how much lye, no matter how much soap you use, we're all Lady Macbeths. We're all washing, trying to wash our hands clean of the sin that's deep within us. But Jesus says, come to me and drink. He says, allow me to become dirty so that you can become clean. Allow my blood to flow so that your blood will stop. Allow me to die so that you might live. That's what the gospel is all about. That's the gospel message. He lived a righteous life in order to give it to you. He died a substitutionary death so that you wouldn't have to. He rose from the dead so that you will too. That's how you cheat death, if you will. Are you desperate enough to approach Jesus? I think there's a lesson for us Christians too in this. Desperation is not just how you approach Jesus. Desperation is how you remain in Jesus. You remain in Jesus by continuing to be desperate for him. 
John Bloom, founder of Desiring God, writes that the lack of a sense of desperation for God is deadly. If we don't feel desperate for God, we don't tend to cry out to him. And he says, and this leads to spiritual death. In other words, if we lose our sense of thirst, we don't come to the stream, do we? If we lose our sense of thirst, why would we seek the water of life? We don't. This is a malady for many Christians. Maybe some of you sitting here today. Have you fallen out of desperation for Jesus? That's the question for you. Have you fallen out of desperation for Jesus? That need to cling to Jesus on a momentary basis. That desire for for intimacy that moment-by-moment dependence on him. You know, if we think back to early in our walk with Jesus, if you can just think back there for a moment, or perhaps maybe think of a particularly fertile time in your walk with Jesus, which is usually associated with when you first come to Jesus. We were desperate, weren't we? We were hungry. We were thirsty. We were in God's word all the time. We were praying all the time. We were talking about him all the time to fellow Christians, to people that weren't Christians. We felt the pangs of desperation for him, the need for him. And then for many, it fades, doesn't it? It fades. Because our desperation is gone. In the book, The Deep Down Dark, by Hector Tobar, he writes about the story of the Chilean mine workers that were trapped, the 33 mine workers that were trapped uh, 2,000 feet below the surface of the earth in, in 2010. They had to live in the dark with almost no food, cut off from the rest of the world, they faced imminent death and the thought that these people would they would never see their loved ones, never see daylight again. But trapped with them was Jose Enriquez, and he was a Christian. And he began to pray with the miners. And as the days turned into weeks, something interesting began to happen to that group. In the deep down dark, with death staring up at the, staring them at the In the face, he writes, the men began to get real before God and before each other. They met every day to eat a meager meal together, hear a short sermon, and then get on their knees and pray for their rescue. And they also began to confess things. He writes, confess things like, God, forgive me for the violence of my voice with my wife and my son. God, forgive me for abusing my body with drugs. God, forgive me for living such a self-absorbed life. They also confessed to each other, too. Meanwhile, above the surface, on the surface, a rescue effort had begun. People, if you remember, all over the world were praying for them, were sending money to save them. A massive worldwide rescue was underway. Really interestingly and unfortunately, 
the happiest part of this story is also the saddest. Because as soon as the drill, he writes, cut a narrow hole through the rock and the miners began to get food and supplies, and as they began to understand that that they would not die, that they would be rescued, they stopped confessing. They stopped praying. They stopped caring for each other. He writes, the absence of desperation undid the transformative community that had developed in their shared condition. See, for many over time, the drill of the gospel that pierces your life kind of becomes normal. Yeah, I got the gospel. Yeah, I have Jesus. They know they are saved. Thus the desperation is gone. And with that, the transformation stops. I had an interesting conversation with my mentor, uh, Jeff Sherman. Last week, we were talking about carnal Christianity. We both say, we both said, that just doesn't exist. There's not a category for carnal Christianity in the Bible. See, a carnal Christian believes that Jesus is their Savior, but never really follows him as Lord. Never really lives under the Lordship of Christ. In other words, they believe the gospel, but they don't think following his teachings is all that important. They believe the gospel, yet they're not desperate to really please their Savior. They believe the gospel, yet their life hasn't really changed from their life before. In other words, it's kind of like being those miners, desperate to be saved until you think you know you're saved, and then you go back to your regular life. There's no such category in Scripture. James tells us that faith without works is dead. Paul tells us that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. You will be transformed. John tells us that if you say that you're without sin, the truth is not in you. Peter tells us that our our calling and election are made sure through the evidence of works in your life. The only category of a Christian in Scripture is one that continues to be desperate for Christ. That continues to live moment by moment, knowing that it's by God's grace all the time. If we take Hector's Tobar's book at face value, those miners were really never really touched by the gospel. When the gospel is real in your life, you remain desperate for Jesus. Not just for salvation, but for sanctification too. That's why as Christians we continue to talk about the sin that so easily entangles us. That's why we talk about it. That's why we do go deep down dark into our own hearts. 
through confession with each other. Confess your sins one to another. This is why we must continually mind the sin in our own lives so that we remain desperate for Christ so that we are reminded of his amazing forgiveness every time he forgives us so that we're reminded of what he has done to save us what he sacrificed to save us so that we are reminded of our ultimate victory in Christ every time so that we're reminded of what he went through to cure our sinful condition what he did to bring us out of our self-isolation so that we are reminded to desperately pray as David did O God you are my God earnestly I seek you my soul thirsts for you my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water I pray that each of us will say I am desperate Let's pray. Father, I pray that that is true for each and every one of us, myself most of all, that we and I will be more desperate for you as a result of your word today than we were coming into this building and sitting at home today. Make us desperate for you. In Jesus' name, amen.